listening to the Getting to the Heart of It with Sarah podcast. As the co-founder and CEO of Tarot Solutions, we support our first responders, Australian Defence Force veterans and other emergency services personnel in their transition to post-service employment with purpose. People are the heart of our business, which is how Getting to the Heart of It was created. You'll have the honour of hearing firsthand stories from the ones who have or who are still serving our beautiful country. You can expect real and raw conversations with our heroes. So hop in, hold on for the ride while you ignite your own sense of purpose as you navigate your way through the ups and downs of life and seek insight through others' experiences. This is where we get to the heart of it. Our guest in this episode is John Schonberger, also known to his mates as Shoners. John is an Australian Defence Force veteran who's currently working as a Navy reservist. John was awarded an Australian Active Service Medal for his contribution in the Iraq War. In this episode, you'll hear about John's career in the Australian Navy his experience whilst on international deployments, including being a part of the first Seahawk mission just before the Gulf War broke out, and how he juggled his family responsibility prior to leaving the country to minimise the impact on his family. John talks about the importance of veterans staying connected, how he does this, as well as how crucial it is for people to be brave and to ask for help when they need it. Some of John's advice from this episode was, in his own words, always check in on your mates to make sure they're okay. And one of John's quotes that resonated with me on a personal level was, no one gets left behind. I hope you enjoy this episode. John, welcome to Getting to the Heart of It with Sarah. It's a pleasure to have you here. John's also known as Shonas. That's your, I assume that was your nickname, going back to your old uh, ADF Navy days. You're an Australian Defence Force veteran. I understand you're still connected to the ADF as a Navy reservist. That's correct, yeah. I still do reserve days for the Navy. So I, I did uh, 29 years full-time service and then I've been doing reserve days ever since I left the Navy full-time, 2004. I went back in for 12 months in 2010 to 11 for full-time, and but ever since then I've been doing reserve days, yeah. It's interesting that I found that when people leave the ADF or they leave the emergency services, they're connected in some way or another. I guess just telling us a little bit about your story and if we could just start with your career in the ADF. Why did you choose a career with the Navy? I was about 17. I was at school. Um, my father left when I was 10, so I was, my mum was raising me on a, as a single mother with three other kids. And um, I was getting in a bit of trouble, um, met into a wrong bunch of crowd, you know, a bunch of guys. was started to get in trouble once once with the police, just for minor stuff. So she said, oh, well, you're either going to end up in jail or you better go and join the services. So we, um, we went down to the recruiting centre in um, Melbourne and um, I joined up pretty much. And I think I... Within about three weeks, I was in. It was pretty quick. And I initially joined as a cook. Well, that's what I wanted to do. 
But when I got to recruit school, um, as you do, you go through a whole bunch of stuff and, and recruit training, and they 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 bring psychs in and what have. It's a little bit different to nowadays where they actually do all this stuff beforehand. But in those days, you sort of got got put in. Uh, you joined as a trade that you wanted to do, but then when they the psychs come and talk to you and other people talk to you, um, they said I was probably I had the smarts to be a technician, so they gave me an option of being either a marine technician, electronic technician, or an aviation technician, and I didn't really know much about it, but I picked aviation technician, and that's 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 how I joined up, basically, yeah. Okay. Mum towed the line. Pretty much, yeah. Well, yeah. If, I mean, it was probably the best thing she, move I did because otherwise I probably would have ended up, you know, getting on the wrong side of the law and being with the wrong crowd, but it was um, probably the best thing I ever did, yeah, and, you know. Oh, good honour. Yes. What was it like then? Tell us a little bit more about your role and then your experience within the ADF. Yeah, it was good. I mean, recruit school, obviously, like any time, it's, it's pretty tough. It's, you know, they they, they, they sort of mould you into a sailor pretty quickly. Um, but I, I didn't mind it. I enjoyed it. It was it was, it was was tough, but it was good. Um, I went through it pretty quickly. Left, left. that was out at Cerberus in Victoria. Left left there, went straight to a place called Albatross in Nowra. HMS Albatross, which is an AV air station there. And then from there, I started my um, aviation training. And you do, in those days, it was like phase training. You did a certain amount of training up uh, in the first thing, and then they put you onto a squadron. And then they'd, you'd go back and do uh, extra courses like phase two, phase three, that sort of thing, and get, get more um, qualified in terms of your trade. And I lived, I lived on the base for probably, I think, about eight, nine months. Then I moved ashore to with a bunch of mates out to a place called Vincentia on the south coast, very nice spot. And then we actually, uh, and I was on the, I was on 817 squad in those days, and that was a seeking squadron. So I've become qualified on those aircraft. I went to sea on the HMAS Melbourne a, a couple of times in 1978 and 19, sorry, 1977 and 1979. Spent most of my time on 817 squadron and got promoted pretty quickly. I was a, Leading seaman in under four years, I was a PO and under under six. So I, I, I went through it pretty quick. Yeah, wow. Uh, in the ranks in that stage, but um, obviously when they when they scrapped the HMAS Melbourne, or they, they got rid of the HMAS Melbourne and didn't get a replacement, um, there wasn't much sea time available for uh, us guys apart from you know, some small other ships. But after that, I um went to a place uh, like an regulating office, which I ran that for a couple of years, and then I went back to. Uh, the hydraulic workshop and the engine repair section. So I was in charge of those two sections. And then I got selected to go to the States on the Seahawk course. So the very, the Seahawk, this is back in 87. They selected people to go for the first course in America. So I went over to Bridgeport for, um, five months and learnt the, did the Seahawk, the very first Seahawk courses. That would have been Yeah, that was good fun. That was good fun over there. Five months in the States in a hotel it was very, very nice. Uh, what was it like? Oh, it was good. I mean, the training was very good. I mean, the, the training was sort of aimed at uh, anybody that hadn't really worked on aircraft so much. It was it was very dumbed down training. So we this course that we do probably take four to six weeks in the navy. Um, mm-hmm. But they taught. Um, it took us about I think twelve weeks. No, no, nearly nearly five months. Twelve, twelve and a bit weeks. But I think it was in some of the days. You know, you just sit there. We know, we know all this stuff, but you just have to tick the box. But really good training. Yeah. But we did a lot of travel in the States while we were there. We managed to be able to get around a fair bit and we visited all over the eastern seaboard in the States and Canada. And then when I came back from there, I went back to the engine repair section for a little while. Then I um, joined 816 Squadron. It was, in those days, it was called the Seahawk. 
introduction transition unit, and uh, which is going to become 816 Squadron. So the aircraft was fairly new, and we weren't we weren't actually going to go to operational stuff until about 1992. That was the plan. But the Gulf War broke out on the 13th of August '90, and on a Friday morning, we all sit in the crew room and. Bob Hawke said he was going to send you know three ships and five aircraft, and they ended up sending two Seahawks, and I became the first um, flight senior maintenance sailor to take an aircraft to sea uh, in an operational with another ship mate of mine, Rob McNeil. So we we left on the Monday, headed off to the Gulf for about four and a half months, five months, got back on December, and uh, yeah, so I, I spent a bit of time on Seahawks and came back to the squadron after that. I then went back to sea again on the Canberra for two years with the Seahawk. Then I went into posting. So I, I got a job in the, the what they called Director of Sailors Career Management, postings it was in those days. So I, I was the poster. I became the poster for all the aviation technicians and FOTS and aircrew and that sort of stuff. Yeah, and then after that I got promoted to warrant officer and then I went back to the, I went back to 723 squad and then so I actually got trained up on another, two other aircraft types, Squirrel and Kiowa, and I became the uh, what they call the Assistant Air Engineer Officer on um, 723 squadron, yeah. Oh, wow, look at you go. So you certainly yeah, yeah. arrived. <laughs> and, that, and that was probably, uh, yeah, that was my last operational sort of job. I, I then went back to postings for a few more years, the warrant officer in charge of all the aviation, submarine and supply categories. And then I become what they call the air technical category sponsor, if you like, in charge of all the, you know, category sponsorship training and and, and staffing and work workforce planning sort of things. And then, that was my pretty much my navy career. Yeah, and and it it sounds like you you know you provided that summary within a few minutes, but um, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's it was so about much. Twenty eight years old, twenty eight <laughs> nine years old. <laughs> Just going back to your deployments because I I think they're they're really interesting for many reasons, and I think it's not only the experience that you go through um, on a personal and professional level, but I think it's also the impact that it can have on your family as well. If you're able to um, take your mind back to, you know, when that call was made, there's a mission, you're heading to the Gulf on that morning. What was going through your mind? Like was there a sense of going to get ourselves into or was there a little bit more excitement, you know, the adrenaline kicks in and it's like, right, let's kid up, let's get out there, get it done. Talk us through, like what what, have, sure. what went through your head. What well, was I was in like? a pretty, I was in a pretty unique situation at that stage because I'd um, when I went to America, I was married, and my, my my first wife and I we um split up basically, and just as I was before I was leaving to go to the states, and I well, I had we had a two year old son, a bit of a weird story, but I I went to the states. She said she was going to wait till I got back, and then then she was going to leave, and uh, but. Whilst I was over there, she made the decision to leave before I got back, but only a week before I got back. But she left our son with her mother, which she was a very good friends with, but, um, and she decided to go to England. So I, I cared for Scott. He was only about 18 months old at the time. So I had him for uh, a couple of years on my own. And at that stage, I, I just before I left to go to goal, I'd, I'd met Kerry, my, my now wife, and we were sort of going out we started, you know, going out, and we we'd planned to get married in October of nineteen ninety, and we'd already had planned the wedding and everything. So on the on the thirteenth, when I came home and said, "Guess what? Um, I've got to go to surf oh, no. Monday." <laughs> You're um, in trouble. <laughs> I was in trouble. Well, yeah. And the, and the biggest thing was that Patricia, by the stage, my first wife, had come back to Australia 
So Scott was going up there on sort of weekends and things, you know, on an ad hoc basis. She'd come down and pick him up. She was living in Sydney at the stage. So my main concern, I guess, was, one, the wedding, and two, what's going to happen to Scott. Now, Kerry had two children from her previous marriage. Her husband, I knew really well, he was a, he was killed in a Navy helicopter down in Bass Strait in 83. So she'd been single for a while with yeah. two kids. So it was like, sort of like a Brady Bunch getting together. I was just worried about, because we weren't actually married and Scott was living with me and we weren't living together at that time, we were just sort of in separate houses. So what Kerry said, she was, she'd off, she'd off to look after Scott whilst I was away. And we had a discussion with my ex-wife and just said, right, you know, this is what's going to happen. And she was happy with that. So Scott still went to Sydney every second weekend, but Kerry basically, you know, cared for Scott for the five months I was away. And then we missed our wedding, obviously, but. I'd made a deal, that, well, not deal, but I made a promise that the day after I got back, we'd get married. So that's what happened. I got, the, got on the 21st, we're married on the 22nd. How yeah, good is yeah, that? So, yeah, it was good. So, I mean, that, that's a really, um, that's that's the sort of personal side of it, I guess, that was, was, mm. was going through my mind. But I guess in the in the, um, in the the scheme of things for the Navy, like it was, it was, it was a bit strange because we've got a aviation guys have got to do a lot of the call of flight senior maintenance sailor charge board, and you usually have to, work up to that and um and I was getting pretty close to doing it. But um it, it came down we had to do it on the Sunday before we left. And it was pretty much, you know, you couldn't fail it. Well, it was one of those boards where you, you normally get grilled for about two hours and you, you go through a whole bunch of scenarios and questions and myself and the other guy went into the board and we normally you go in separately, we went in together and they just said, um, right, um, you're going. There's no one else to go. Basically don't stuff up. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And good luck. So that's a, that was our sort of attack board. But, Come home you know, safely. <laughs> yeah, don't don't yeah. break the helicopter, and um, you know, make sure you do things right. So, so it's a pretty big learning curve for me. I'd never been to sea on a FFG before. We'd never been. I'd never been to sea with a helicopter before. We hadn't had any training. We just sort of landed. I flew on the helicopter on the Monday. The ship was out at sea, and I'm coming up, coming around Sydney, and um, just started to learn from there. And luckily, I had a good bunch of guys that had actually been to sea. Two or three of them have been to sea on what they call the first of class trials. So they knew a little bit about uh, the ship and they also knew a little bit about the air, how the aircraft you know, managed at sea in the hangar. So I knew all the technical stuff. It was just it's more the actual, um, you know, how, they actually, how to operate the aircraft at sea in the hangar and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a challenge for the first few weeks. But we, as with anything, I think this is the first time the Navy had been to sea operationally since, you know, probably Vietnam. So there was a lot of what I call uh, workup training, you know, the the, the um, sea training group come on and really got us got stuck in. It was to make sure that we were prepared to go because we'd never really done this stuff before, and that was a big part of the actual um, the workup was the you know the um, basically MBCD, you know, the the workup exercises, you know, flood fires, all that sort of stuff, making sure we're ready for um, action and things. So yeah. whilst we were still trying to work on all the helicopter stuff, we we really had to bed down and you know the um, pre deployment preparation. Pre-deployment training, if you yeah. like, and that was done. That was done on the way over because they didn't have time to sort of do it before we left. So, oh wow! And no, now, now, in nowadays, they'll have a ship ready to go, and they'll they'll do it months in advance. We had three days basically, and that's the way it was. But you know, everyone was in the same boat, you know. So yeah. we just got on with it. Is there anything that you can share from your experience over there? Did that experience, I guess, change the perspective of how you see things now? Probably a little, probably a little bit. I mean, um, we, we our our main goal because we were the first two ship or three the three ships went. And I was at Darwin and, and at Darwin, Adelaide, and success. Three ships went up first. Uh, we were basically there to uh, enforce some sort of sanctions 
before and and do boardings on tankers and things to make sure nothing was you know going to go into Iraq. And then as we were leaving in December, uh, a bunch of ships replaced us, and that's when the Gulf War broke out. So we were basically desert desert shield, and then desert storm started, if you like, they called it. So we got home just before the actual war broke out when they declared war, but we were actually up there doing the lots of boardings and things. So, I mean, it was it was interesting work. I mean, it was busy days. You know, some days we'd, we'd be working all day. Or, you know, I, I remember doing a 28-hour day one day. Um, that's, you know, wasn't, wasn't only, we were not, we weren't, we're not allowed to do that anymore because of crew rest, but uh, in those days, maintainers didn't have any crew rest. We just got on and fixed aircraft, but it's pretty much uh, the whole ship got together. You know, we had boarding parties. We had, you know, all, everyone does the whole ship evolutions and stuff, but the, the, the ship uh, pretty much well melded together and we just worked hard, but you know, we had to be ready for action. You know, I, I remember our captain was, he was really good. He used to, he used to make a pipe over the main broadcast, uh, quick draw, and we, anyone that was on the flight deck just had to go about grab a fifty cal gun and just fire it in the air in case you know that was a, that was a last ditch effort. So we we practice these drills like that. I had a really good crew, uh, you know, good team. The officers are a little bit funny because they were they were all the most senior officers on the squadron, which is unusual because they were the only ones trained at the time. So we we took all the experienced officers away. So back at the squadron, there was hardly anybody. And the same with the same with the maintenance team. They were, were all new squadron. Um, there was very little left back of the squadron in terms of experienced people because we all had to go to sea. So they struggled a bit to train up the next bunch of guys. They managed to do so. But I suppose my, my, my I didn't. I suppose my perspective is I mean I, that's what you're trained for. That's what mm-hmm. we do. Um, you go out there. Whilst it was a big learning curve, and we didn't have much preparation time. Sometimes. I'm not saying that's the best way to do it, but it, sometimes it just happens and you just get on and do it. And when you look back, you go, know, well, that wasn't that hard. But we, you did work hard, but, I mean, you just did what you had to do. You got home, you got married. What happened after that? I mean, it was tough for Kerry, obviously, with being alone for you know, five months with the kids, but that's what you know, Navy was. I, I made a commitment we got married, so we moved in together. I was still on the squadron by then. I was just in another job. I was what they call the uh, flight support chief, so I'd be supporting the ships at sea that were going up behind them, and I did that for another 18 months, and then they offered me a, um, a job in postings in Canberra. Family moved to Canberra then. Uh, before that, I actually went back to sea again on um, HMAS Canberra. I did two years on her, and we did one big golf trip up to the Mass 6 between September uh, 92 to I think that, April 93. The uh, diploma that we got awarded our active service, our Australian Active Service Medal. We're involved with a um, American ship which sort of fired some Tomahawk missiles into Iraq one night. So we were we were their escort. So it took a long while to get that medal recognised. One of the guys on the ship actually did a lot of work on that. AB Cook and did a lot of work. Finally got the I suppose that recognition, and we ended up getting the medal awarded about I don't know eight or nine years later. I think it was probably <laughs> longer. Twelve years later, two thousand and four, with the medal. Well deserved, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. How long was it until you started thinking that there may be something more for you out there other than the ADF, even though you're still connected now? Yeah, I suppose what drove me, I, I, I was a warrant officer in, in 90. I got promoted warrant officer and I went straight to a squadron and that was a, that was a really good job. I was in charge of like all the maintenance there. I did that for three and a half years. Then I went into postings. I was there for about three, three and a half years in there, that job as well. And then I did the, the last job. At that stage, we were in Canberra. We've been there for like five years, I suppose, yeah, four or five years. I didn't want to go back to Nara, and Kerry didn't want to go back to Nara because she didn't, uh, even though she was born there, she, did, she didn't like the place. So she, we were, she was quite happy here. All our kids were in school here. 
I was happy to go anywhere, but we, we decided we, I, I'd either try and get another post in Canberra. When I spoke to my career manager, he said, oh, your next post is probably going to have to be to either back to now or to Sydney, uh, fleet headquarters. And I said, well, sort of done that stuff all before. I don't really want to go back. I'll look for a job. So I ended up looking for a job on the, just in the public service, actually. And I managed to find an EL1's job um, in workforce planning, which was pretty much what I was doing in Navy, at my last job, I was sort of planning workforce for the next generation of squadrons that have come online or aircraft that come online, so just doing that. So I applied for the job and I got it. I was sort of in two minds whether to go or stay, but I said, oh, well, at the end of the day, if I, if I do stay in, I'm probably likely to get posted out of Canberra, whereas this is going to keep me in Canberra with the family. Um, even though Scott was 18, the youngest uh, at that stage, they were all still living at home. So, but I, I, I made a commitment to keep the reserve days going. So, I, whilst I was in the public service, I was doing at least twenty-five days a year, sometimes more. Did the public service? I was in public service for about fourteen years with, with defence in three different jobs. Um, I did. I did take a break from the public service and go back into the navy in two thousand and ten full time, just for a, um, a job, another job in career management at Harman. After about two thousand and seventeen, I think it was two thousand sixteen, two thousand seventeen, I decided to. Leave the public service full time and just just and all, all I do now is reserve days. Yeah, so pretty much retired from full time work, just part time now. Okay, so going back to that time where you made the decision to leave the ADF, I guess you're giving up your rank and as a warrant officer that you worked really hard for, and then you take up that opportunity within Defence APS. Did you find that transition difficult or was it kind of, was it made easier because you were still within the organisation? I think two things. I mean, it was made simple because I was probably still in the organisation, but also where I was working in this this department, it was in, the, it was in what they call the Defence Material Organisation, which, which is now SG. Um, they, they, did, they do all the procurement. The team that I was working with were mainly all ex-military guys and you know, warrant officers, chiefs, um, you know, flight sergeants, and things like that. So we had a couple of civilian, you know, crew civilians working in there, but uh, they were doing mainly data crunching. But the actual military workforce planning side of it, which was, which was my role, uh, work, you know, planning for all the next future workforce in the, the DMO for new projects. We all sort of, some of us knew each other from previous from Navy days, or we all knew we all had an ADF background. So. We clicked pretty well together, um, even though there was a couple of Air Force bikes in there. You know, but, you know, it was all, it was all good. So I, I had a really good team. You know, I led, I led a bunch of – I led about five, five, six people, and I think five of those six were actually um, ex-military. So, you know, they they knew that they had a good work, work ethic. They, they knew the systems. They knew the processes, and yeah, we worked pretty well together. And I had a, I had a, I had a pretty good um, director as well. Uh, James, so he was he was really good. So yeah, he just let us get get let us get on and do our stuff, and yeah. he knew we could do our stuff. So there was no sort of drama there. So I, I, it was a pretty easy transition. I mean, obviously I I missed the service a bit, but because we had pretty good camaraderie in our team, mm. you know, and I kept a pretty close uh, involvement with Navy anyway. You know, I'd, I'd go back for reunions, go back to NAR and things like that. Yeah, so. Yeah, and I think those bonds that you form in the environments that you're faced with are lifetime bonds, aren't they? Yeah, yeah they are. Fairly involved with it. Like I'm a president of the Fleet Aero Association over here in Canberra, so we have regular meetings with you know all us birdies. It's good to catch up with guys every you know couple of months. And we do Anzac Day, days together and things like that. 
Yeah, that's good. That connection is really important. What do you think is one of the biggest issues faced by our current and former members? And just while you're having a, a think about that, as a collective, what do you think possible solution? So just going back to that question, what do you think one of the biggest issues faced by current and, and former members? It's, it's funny because um, the services today are a lot different to when I was in, oh, you know, the full time. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, they still do the same stuff, but I guess there's a lot more rules and regs in terms of what you can and can't do and say. And, that, and that's understandable because that's how society's gone. I don't have a problem with that. You know, we've got to treat people the right way. But I think the biggest hurdle sometimes is when, when, a, per, when, a, when, a, when a person gets out, it depends on how they get out. If they, if they get out and they're happy when they get out because they've, they've loved the job, they usually seem to go okay. It's when they, it's when they have an issue with the service because something's gone wrong or they didn't get the posting they want or they've had a bad experience and they, and they leave on bad terms, then they sometimes seem to get they, – they don't want anything to do with the services. And that's when I think they have to start to struggle a bit because they, they've, you know, they've been in the service for quite a while. They've got the good, good camaraderie, good bonds with mates and whatever. And then what happens is they leave and they go somewhere else, and they and they really don't want to. They really don't want to be involved in the service because they, they left on a bad term. And I think that's when they struggle a bit because they've got no one really to, to turn to sometimes because some of their they don't really want to get back involved with their mates. I mean, some some people do, but I think the other thing too is is the way that the some of the things like for veterans affairs it's it's get, it's improving, but it, um, just to get his support from veterans affairs it's a it's a long long winded process. I mean, I'm sort of going through it now. You've got to have a really good advocate. To, you've got any issues it seems to take a long time to get stuff resolved some people have good experiences but i think that's mainly the um loss of camaraderie i guess is when you leave you've had you've had that all the time and if you don't get into a, a job where you've you've still got that or you've or you've, you leave on bad terms some people just seem to struggle a bit with it, i think and that's what i've yeah. noticed i had a few of my mates go through it and then i've you know i've had a few, a few of my mates even try to commit suicide we've had to go up and fly up to brisbane and you know help him out and stuff like that so it's yeah, it's more really about tough. you know, and, he, and he's going through a whole bunch of stuff. Trying to get you know, you know, you just got to try and help them out. Yeah, that's right. Just be there for each other. Mm. It yeah, like you're a good mate. And I think you know, the, the thing of having things like reunions and you know, get-togethers, it's it's not about just getting on getting on the drink and having a great time. That's one of the things, but it's also just you know, reliving your reliving your days and you know, keeping in touch and you know, making sure people are you know, are you okay? Everyone's safe, you know. You can, you can tell straight away if, you know, someone's not, not real great and then you can focus in and say, you know, well, what can we do to help? Yeah, and talking about it is so important, isn't it, which is, which is one it of is, the reasons yeah. why we're doing this is just, yep. you know, to let people know that it's actually okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to talk about your story and what's happening for you. Yep. And, you know, sometimes even just doing that helps and knowing that there yeah. are others out there to help you. It does. Um, something that I've noticed as well with a lot of um, former ADF, I think, is just being in that structured environment, go through their training, they work their way up in their career, and it's like that rank is linked to their identity and then when they make that decision to leave the service sometimes i think they can feel a little bit lost yeah i guess i guess in a way that's that's there is a it's more more so about the actual 
mateship and the camaraderie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, when I left, I was a warrant officer, but I got from I got an L ones job, which you know is meant to be equivalent to a commander. Unique to me because you know one day you're calling all these people sir, and then the next day it's you know it's just Bob or Fred or whatever, and um, whether they're admirals or whatever. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a different experience. You just you just get on and live with it. I think it's more about the fact that um, some some people lose their identity, I suppose, in the in the fact that they're not still in the service. It's more the ability to, to be with people you know, like minded. Like some of the some of the times I've, I've I've been in a couple of different jobs in the public service, and I've met and I've worked with some really good defence civilians. When you work in the defence department, you know it's all about making sure we've got the right stuff for our troops, you know, to go and fight and win win the wars. And some people in there are just, they don't seem committed like that, whereas the, the people in the services seem fairly committed because that's what, what's what we were you know, we joined up to do that. Yeah. But sometimes you get this um, bit of us and them thing, and I'm not saying it's it's, it's prevalent, but it's 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 there. It's you just got to make sure that you understand that you, you will come across those people. You know, and I went through a bit of a stage in um, in my my last job with defence where I you know I, I come across a a bit of a um, issue, and I had some depression because of the, the work. It was a workflow, so it wasn't my. And I just decided to. That was one of the main job reasons I left the public services because I was took a bit. I took a bit of uh, time off work at one stage for anxiety and depression, and I was pretty bad at one stage. About three months, I was sitting at home doing nothing <laughs> till I managed to get you know get get some counselling and help. The good thing I had, I had a really good supervisor, a good boss to help me get through all that. But at the end of the day, when I came back after that, I just said, look, it's just at a stage now where I don't want to be doing this anymore full time. You know, I've done 40-something years. So it's time to look after me and the wife and, um, you know, just go and travel the country pretty much. And the job I'm doing now sort of allows me to do that, which is good. So it's, it's a job in the reserves I can actually – I don't have to be in the office every day. I can be on the road or I can be at home. You know, I can, I've been on the road like last this year, four and a half months and I was still do, I was still working pretty much every you know every second day. So it's something you can do as long as you've got the connectivity, as long as you do the work, mm-hmm. they're happy. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to be in the office. And, that, and that's the what's one good thing about nowadays. You know, I think COVID's proved that you can work from home, you can work remotely. You don't need to be tied to a desk. Absolutely, I would agree with that. And I think sometimes we can even be a little bit more productive at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sometimes you can <laughs> when the kids are at school. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Just some closing thoughts for us. Looking back on your career, what do you think was one of the most memorable moments from a career perspective? One of the most memorable was probably my first you know, pinnacle in the, in the in my world, in the birdie world, is basically taking your aircraft to sea as a, as a, as a flight senior maintenance officer, so as a chief. That was probably the, the pinnacle, I guess, because you you know you're, you're you have nobody above you that makes a decision on that aircraft. There's no officers above you on the ship. The captain can't, you know, tell you where they have to operate the aircraft. You have the final say if it, it flies or doesn't fly on basically on your say. So, so that's that was probably the the highlight. And I did that did that sort of thing twice. So you know, did two two deployments with that. So that that was probably a career highlight for me. I think then the other one too was um, also when I was um, in charge of the warrants on the squadron. They were you know I had about 160 guys working under me, maintaining you know 15 aircraft. We had a a really good crew. I know. I know. I did a pretty good job because when I left, they're all you know the, the amount of presents and stuff that I got. They were pretty. They actually kept me on for another year and a half after I was supposed to be there for two years. They they, they made sure that I stayed. The CA four pretty hard to keep me, but um, 
mean, I was quite happy to stay. It was a great job. In the day, that was probably the highlights, I guess. Yeah. Sounds, sounds pretty special. You, it sounds yeah. like you had an amazing career. Are there any wise words that you'd like to share with any current serving or veterans to help them on their journey? I think the the, the key one is if the current serving guys, I mean, you know, you, you'll have your ups and downs for the service and you, you won't always get your own postings away. But, I mean, my, my view was I always said, well, hang on, you know, something will come, something will turn out okay. And if you do the, you put the hard yards in and do the right thing, you'll get, you'll get promoted and you'll, and you'll work your way through the, through the ranks and do the jobs you want. Um, at the end, you, you won't always get what you want, but at the end of the day, you know, if you do the right thing, 95% of the times you'll have a great time. For the veterans, I think the, the, the key is when you do get out, no matter what you're doing, is just to try and keep in touch if you can with, with those people you've, um, been in service with. I mean, you know, there's people you won't like, there's people you, you'll you'll have a great time with, but, um, but at the end of the day, try and keep in touch with those people because they're the people that'll help you if, when you're down. So, yeah, and service people are very much like that. If someone's having a, a bad day, you only got to get on Facebook, you'll see someone, they'll start to make a few posts and go, that dog doesn't seem okay. And then and, and 10 people will check in and go, hey, mate, you're okay. And then it's just that, that, it's just that sort of, uh, military way we do things and you, know, you always check to see if your mates are okay you don't want to leave anyone behind it's a matter yeah. of going in there and just you know making sure so i think the main thing is to keep in touch with guys if you if you are having an issue speak out and it doesn't matter who you are you know talk up it's, it's, there's, there's nothing wrong with saying you need help no uh, men especially don't like doing that but um some men don't but um but sometimes you've actually got to do that, and you'll find once you do that, you'll, you'll usually have no worries, no, no no problem with people coming out to give you give you assistance or direct you in the right the right direction to get some assistance. Great advice, John. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your service. I wish you all the best with your travelling right. around Australia. <laughs> so, Thank you, Sarah. No, it's been a pleasure doing it. enjoyed this episode please hit subscribe to make sure you never miss a show if you or someone you know could benefit from real support with their transition from service please reach out to sarah or robert mccomas from to road solutions we can assist you in providing employment opportunities that align to your values and purpose Check out the services we provide at Tarot Solutions by visiting www.tarotsolutions.com.au. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter.